BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. We are recording in uh, late August, but you're listening to this particular podcast, most likely on September 6th. That's when it is originally airing. And we are in the midst of a series of podcasts uh, and uh, taking the, what, being done while Victor is teaching at Hillsdale College, which on September 6th, that's what he's doing. He's up there for two weeks. Oh, Victor. Yeah, he's the namesake and the star of this show, Victor Davis Hanson. He's the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at the aforementioned Hillsdale College. Victor um, writes a lot of original material. First of all, he writes a ton of stuff, uh, American Greatness, New Criterion, uh, many other places, but a lot of original material for his website, victorhanson.com. I'm going to get the plug in right now. Go to it. Subscribe. Five bucks for the first time, $50 for a year. You're missing tens of thousands of words a month of Victor's wisdom if you don't do that. Okay, plug done. So these podcasts we are recording in late August, we're doing six of them, and they're based on questions that you listeners have kindly submitted, knowing that we were going to be doing this. And uh, we've got a few questions about people who work with their hands, something Victor has talked and written about. Um, many times in the past, but uh, we're going to hear his wisdom once again, and we're going to get to these questions right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show, my friend. Uh, yeah, we we were ju- we've just recorded a podcast uh, uh, which talked about farming, and we're gonna one of these questions coming up is about farming. It's amazing as you were talking, and I'm looking at the kind of questions we I was going to ask in forthcoming podcasts, and you've talked about 
you know, uh, uh, collecting the almonds from almond trees and having the mallet, rubber mallet trees. I'm thinking, my God, what kind of backbreaking work goes into And by the way, you farming. can kill a rattlesnake with a mallet because it was in the foothills. And every time we were there, there would be a little hole. About every <laughs> every time we went to work, there'd be about the seventh hole. There would be a uh, seventh tree. There'd be a little hole with a snake with his head out. And bam. And was it just be- rubber mallet? That was it because it. it was the foothills or do they have some, well, some you know, association with almond trees? Well, you know, it's shady and it's up, it's dry, especially in August when you harvest. So okay. it was up, this was a weird orchard in the, on the foothills, but there's not, our great grandparents where I live got rid of the California Pacific rattlesnakes. And I think it was about 1910. They had these rattlesnake and cotton uh, jackrabbit hunts where they hold hands and they right. would wa- walk across the field for miles. And then they would drive the jackrabbits and the rattlesnakes and kill them all. And so when I grew up, um, not that rattlesnakes were not native to the San Joaquin Valley. They were weak. I, I thought they were only a foothill and mountain species, but that was only because they had been driven from one of their natural habitats. That was a natural habitat for them too. Uh, the foothills and the Sierra below 5,000, 6,000 feet. But wow, um, I saw one rattlesnake in my entire life out here in Fresno County. Oh, wow. By the river, you see them once in a while. But I saw one, and it was only on the Kings River. And I think when I've been up in the mountains, I see a lot of them. And so they got rid of them all in a very ecologically, we should condemn that we were talking about the abuses of history. So we're going to use our own moral code to say those awful people in 1910 right. were paranoid about those venomous snakes. Right. And they had no business doing that. And they ruined the echo world or the echo sphere because of there's no more poor little Pacific rattlesnakes. In and, 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 and mean to the jackrabbits. Not that uh, mean, also. There are places, but not where I live. Not. Yeah. But we have beautiful little um, garter and especially uh, gopher snakes. I, I love those snakes. We see them everywhere. You're kind of neat. Now, the snakes are a part of the, the life of a farm and I getting, so. keeping, getting rid of rodents, them. right? They're not venomous. Yeah. Okay. Well, l- let me let me uh, engage in this uh, people who work with their hands questions, uh, Victor. And the first is is about farming, and and it's you'll get the gist of the question. I it, it wasn't written with the greatest precision, but it's from from Blunderbuss, which I I have a feeling is a nickname because I never heard of Saint Blunderbuss. How can we increase the number of family farmers and middle class farmers? Who would be without huge funding or vertical integration, which are available to corporate agriculture? That gets me a little. It's a little, little uh, fuzzy on the on the tenses, etc. But uh, in general, I guess there's a you know there, there's two questions there. Is there a need for more farmers of uh, of a non corporate uh, type and? Uh, I, I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine doing that other than having a small farm because it's some you know kind of idyllic dream. But as a but as a business, getting into farming as a business that's not corporate. Yeah, how do you yeah, do well, that? I, Should I, you do well, it? I wrote, Is it a crazy dream? Go ahead. Um, in nineteen ninety six, 
in 98, I wrote two books on this subject. One was called Fields Without Dreams. Jane Smiley, who wrote A Thousand Acres, wrote the introduction to the second book. I'm sure she regrets it now, called Letters from an American Farmer. I discussed this topic. And to boil down those two books, it's um, there's a dichotomy. When you go to the store anywhere in the United States and you see fresh apples and plums and peaches and grapes and carrots and celery, and it's clean, it's nutritious, and it's cheap. The recent was until Joe Biden became president. There's a reason for that. And when you go to a farmer's market and it doesn't look as pristine and it's a little ripe and it tastes better, it's probably more nutritious and it's more expensive, there's a reason for that. And when you go, let's say you get on, I don't know, Avenue 7, um, Manning Avenue, anything that goes Shields Avenue across California, and you get past 30 miles east of the Sierra, and you get closer to the coast ranges, and you don't see anybody living out there. And yet, when you go down the 99, you see uh, Visalia, and you see Kingsburg. And you see Selma, and you see Fowler, and in Fresno, and Madera, and Merced, and Modesto. And they, they, that was where the railroad was. That was where there was water. So there were historical reasons for that. It was basically the, the aquifer and the, and the riparian ecosystem from the Sierra Nevada. Okay, what I'm saying is this is that there's a dichotomy that corporate agriculture cannot be faulted about providing us food. Nobody does it better because they're vertically integrated. That is, they own the food producing lands, which they don't make a lot of money per acre on. Usually they own the trucking, they own the packing, the processing and the brokerage. And the farmer is at the bottom of that chain. He only produces and he is dependent on a packer, on a trucker, on a broker, on a supermarket. And he has no control over that price. So every dollar that you pay for uh, agricultural produce, he gets about two or three cents. And he argues that, but if you look at those communities that I just listed, they were rich cultural institutions. You go down there, they had beautiful post offices. They had beautiful train stations. You go to the city hall, they're beautiful examples of architecture. They all had parks in the middle, just like in the Midwest or the East Coast, Jack. They have uh, World War II memorials. They have a cannon here. They have uh, a statue there. And they have these beautiful little downtowns. And that was a cultural experience. And those families then raised boys and girls for America. And they came and they were because they they emphasized the practical that these boys and girls were not abstract thinkers. They had to test their theories, their mind works, so to speak, by physical labor. And that's what the farmer does. If you say, oh, I have a new variety of plums and I think it's going to be so great. Okay, then plant it, borrow the money, do the labor and see what happens when it's no damn good. You'll go broke. So you're very reluctant to take chances that are unfounded. So it was that corrective of abstract theorizing. It was wonderful. And they don't worry about diversity, equity, inclusion, because you're all in the same lot. So when I grew up here, if I'm looking around now in a 360, when I saw the Kasigians or I saw the Israeli, the Israeli, 
the Israelians, or I saw a Mr. Mendoza, or I saw uh, a Tarzan C. Ota, or I saw um, various other ethnic groups, so-called non-white. Nobody cared. What, what did you talk about? Oh, man, uh, I have a jubilee and it's out. Do you know how to uh, fix the... Uh, the brushes on the generator. Can you do it for me? Or you know what? I just cracked my uh, listers. Can I borrow one? Or my vineyard wagons bearings are out on the front wheel. Can I borrow your tire? That kind of stuff. They didn't care. It was a natural multiculturalism, natural diversity. It wasn't enforced by a bunch of rarefied white people that are worried about their uh, their privilege, and they feel that they have to force upon us their noblesse oblige on race. So it was a wonderful incubator of that culture, and it's gone. And it's gone because they did everything perfectly. Right. They created the good citizen, the good community. They were the bedrock of the United States. They produced good, nutritious varieties, Alberta peaches, Santa Rosa plums, uh, Thompson seedless girdled grapes, just delicious. But if you are a highly suburbanized and urban population and you need that type of food delivered to your door thousands of miles from where it's, then you need somebody that has the ability to do that. And that means they have a refrigerated truck and they have particular chemicals and they have particular protocols and they have particular varieties of, of fruit that looks good but you drop a modern peach or a plum and it'll bounce on the floor. It's hard, right? And they don't taste any good. You take a regular peach that you buy right. in Dayton, Ohio, and you try to you try to eat it like an Alberta peach. You take an right. Alberta peach and you try to send it to Ohio, it's gonna be mush when it gets there. Right. So they were local producers and you did you ate seasonal fruit. So if you were in Ohio or Michigan, you ate plums or peaches or whatever would grow and, and but you didn't get, you know, chili and grapes. Right. in february but so corporate agriculture gave you all these choices and all these new varieties of fruits and vegetables and it was wonderful and it was cheap and they were safe and they were nutritious but they didn't feel that they that agriculture was agrarianism or it had social or cultural responsibilities or right. liabilities and small farming did and small farming can't compete with that so if you're in europe the europeans have decided and i'm not a big fan of europe's uh socioeconomic paradigms, but they have decided if you go to rural France and picturesque the English countryside, or you go into the the wonderful places of the Peloponnese in Greece or Italy up in, you know, Tuscany, they say, you know, this is worth saving. So we're going to subsidize these people. We're going to have price supports and this and that. And it's very, it can be very expensive. Food's much more expensive in Europe, but it is tend to be more local and then you go out in the country and you see these beautiful small little farms and you know and that's not what we do that's not what america does and that i have mixed emotions about but what i'm not going to do and i decided when i wrote those books 20 you know 25 years i was not going to romanticize agriculture or agrarianism right. to the extent that i was going to lie about corporate agriculture and say it's inefficient or it's dangerous right. or it's toxic and I can tell you that I farmed here as a fifth generation, and this this uh, farm was cluttered. I mean, I had antiques, and I had old fence posts, and I had piles of this and piles of that. 
because never every generation never knew when they'd have to cannibalize an old piece of equipment. And we had alleyways that, that were picturesque and we had trees lined. There were tree lined little, uh, you could, it was almost like the English countryside. And we had an artesian pond and it was beautiful. But my God, when you tried to farm and you had a five acre parcel here and a third, three acre over there and a 15 acre over there, it was not efficient. So when all of our neighborhood went corporate and corporate agriculture came in, what they did with me, they said, we will rent this place and you should see it. now." They just leveled it and they tore out all that. They tore out all the the irrigation systems and they planted this beautiful uh, grid with geo, um, you know, satellite uh, efficiency and precision and gps and my god every tree is perfectly aligned and the it looks like a a a park it's beautiful is it strictly almonds or is there yes it's monocrop you don't do that on 45 you do not uh, we would have you know 10 different varieties in some 40 acre parcels right and you know we had it geared toward uh fresh fruit for santa cruz fresh fruit for palo alto fresh fruit for san luis obispo monterey carmel and then we would we would, it was a lot of work. I did that for 20 years. Yeah. When was the last time you were, um, a- actual, I hate to put it this way, like, but actually farming, when, when were you still? Well, I, I, I you may a, still be in, in a sense, Well, I was full time. Right. I left graduate school and came home in 1980. And then I did that for five years. And then in 84, I started teaching part-time Latin for a year. And then I, tried to suggest I could start a classics department at clouds. I was the only classics professor. That's another story altogether, but I met a really brilliant guy, Bruce Thornton, and he and I partnered and we created a classics department. So then I was full-time, but I kept, I kept uh, farming with my uh, family, my two brothers and cousin. And I did that for another five years. So that 10 years. And then I got kind of ill because I was farming full-time. And I mean by full-time, driving up to Fresno at 8 o'clock to teach a Latin class, uh, driving back home to check on, you know, a picking crew, eating lunch, driving back up to Fresno to teach a Greek literature class, and humanities, driving back home, and sometimes three three times. And when I say up and back, I don't mean five minutes. I mean 28 miles. So I was, and I had old cars, so I would be breaking down and I would pick up parts in Fresno for, I did all that. And then in the nineties, I positioned out of that. So I was a member of the farming partnership, but I was more like a, I don't know, advisor, or I did stuff. My father, I helped him. He was involved in it too, but I wasn't out on a tractor. And then on we it was all located at my house. So we had a big packing house, 30 or 40 people here at my house. And so I had all the workers here. And then at night, I would go out and help clean up. But I had a twin brother who was a, a, an entire workaholic. I mean, if you think I'm a workaholic, he was he was getting up at five in the morning and he was on a tractor all day long and then he was managing it. So that took a lot off, off the responsibility when I kind mm-hmm. of faded out of the picture. And then after it was all broken up, we had, I mean, we have five people and you only have 180 acres and then you have five spouses. You've got right. 10, di- 10 different agendas. 
Right. And when prices in the 2000 became rock bottom, they weren't even, I mean, we had been getting, I don't know, $14 for Black Butte plums to take one advantage. By 2005, they were $4. We had been getting fourteen twenty a ton for raisins. And by 2003, they were six dollars $700, $800. Damn. You couldn't make it. So right. that was right. the big... Sh- and then, unfortunately, the people in my family that either had to sell or wanted to sell, sold out at a very low price for the most part. And the land that I see now, that area around me, uh, it's thirty or 40,000 an acre now. And it's kind of sad because I walk every night with my five dog, four dogs, and we go around the perimeter of my 40 acres, but we go around the perimeter also of my great-great-grandmother, great-great my great grandfather, my grandfather, my parents' land, and it's all owned by other people. And I don't blame anybody for selling out. I don't know how anybody survived. They didn't. And, you know, I had a brother who had a master's degree in biology. So he was, he was highly educated. And I had another brother with a master's degree. And, and I, and it was very hard for them to make a living. I was lucky that, um, that I had a job in town, but, but I did that for, I guess you'd say, 10 or 12 years full-time while I was teaching part of that time. And then I kind of was advisory and puttered on weekends and did stuff when, you know, there was nobody around. Or what I mean by that is if somebody call up and say, I've got to go fix the tractors or there's a broken concrete pipeline, Victor, can you? And I would go out on the weekends and do stuff like that. And then the last, when it was all broken up, then everybody went their own way. And I had 40 acres and I, I just couldn't do it and teach and travel. And write. Right. so I rented it out. Victor. Uh, and I finally decided that there was no money in any of it. The vines were, were, were just losing money. So I just said to the renter, that's it. I'm done. And then yeah. I didn't know what to do. And then a very wonderful guy came by and said, he's a big corporate farmer, but he was wonderful, Furman Compost. And he said, Victor, I'm going to be leasing a lot of land in your area. I want to integrate your 41 acres with all of this other land and make it almonds and I'll, I'll line up all the plots and it'll be very good for me. And he turned it into a beautiful farm. I mean, it's a state-of-the-art almond farm now. And he leases it from me. Right, and I I really admire him, and uh, he's another American success story. Oh yeah, um, family. You know Tony. I know Tony. I've been to the I've been I've, uh, you know guy from the Bronx going that, to the almond yeah. processing plant. It's a wow. It's yeah, that's just, his uncle. I mean, that, that's the thing that people don't understand about uh, Central California. If you look uh, at the Compost family, the, the original two brothers, and then. Second generation, they were from Basque. Or you look at the Parnagians and Fowler Packing and what they've done with mandarins. It's just, it's just incredible. Yeah. So you have, I know, when I mean incredible, these are family corporations, but the state of the art technology, right. and they compete globally and they, they produce a very nutritious product. It's safe and they can do it at a price that's cheaper than people in Spain or Greece. Right. And uh, I, they're really admirable. People. Admirable, big time. You know, hey, Victor, before we get on to the other uh, part of the question, but people working with their hands, if you quickly, I'm just curious again. I mentioned Boy from the Bronx, even though I, I think I've told you in the past, I used to work on a fruit and vegetable delivery truck yeah. through, you know, so uh, uh, I always had an 
an affinity for fruit crate labels and yeah. where Andy Boy Broccoli was being. But as you I were growing, <laughs> yeah, when you were when you were growing up, um, were these uh, associations that have nothing to do with where I grew up, 4-H uh, and the and the Grange? Yeah. Were these a part of your life yeah. as a kid growing up, and how and how much were they part of c- the community of the Central oh, Valley were, towns? We had the Farm Bureau which everybody belonged to. And then there were, the Granges were starting to, they they were there and they started to fade when I was there. But they had the future farmers of America with the blue jackets. And my brother was a future farmer. He had to buy a steer and raise it. And uh, yeah, there were all of these, there was the Raisin Bargaining, it's still their association. I was a member of that. I was a member of the Sunmade Raisin Cooperative. In fact, they owed me $89,000, my brothers and I, when they went, we capitalized that we never got most of it. We never got. And so I knew all of those. We was a member of the, uh, I had farm bureau health insurance for my family. I was a member of farm bureau. I used to be a subscriber to fruit and uh, fruit tree grower and grape grower magazine. And I used to read those nonstop. I it was very funny because I'd be in my office and somebody would come in and I would be, you know, I had to, when you have a small classics department of four or five people, you have a, you can't offer the, the rich level of coursework you'd like. So you do independent studies, a lot of work. So I would be offering an independent study and Lysias is uh, on the cripple or maybe Xenophon's Poroi or Satyricon by Petronius. And at the same time, I'd be reading Great Grower Magazine or <laughs> Western Tree Fruit Grower. And I would be looking at pack tanks and all the different type of machinery. And then people would come in and they couldn't figure out whether I was an <laughs> ag professor. And then I would go to the ag department and there were some good guys there, but they weren't actual farmers. You know what I mean? They were kind of like, so it was a very strange, uh, yeah. schizophrenic. It still is because although I'm not actively farming, I live on a farm and I'm I'm with farmers all day yeah. in, in the vicinity. And then I go to uh, to Hoover on each week, and it's just such a. It, I've been doing right. doing this. It's a cultural go to Mars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just I I've been doing that since I was a student at 18 at UC Santa Cruz, a student at Stanford, commuting back and forth and. Sometimes it it just mind-boggling the cultural differences in three or four hours that you experience, and the the the, the wealth of talent in the San Joaquin Valley. Yeah. And uh, I was just talking to a guy the other day, Simon Ciota, and my gosh, I said, "You know anything about? I, I'm I'm putting a conduit. Yes, I can do this, Victor. <laughs> and I, I'm going to do. I'm going to get a. I'll do the cement." And I think my pump is starting. Ah, don't worry about that. I have a guy to do that. And then yeah. I, I said, well, is there anything you can't do? Yeah. And I mean, that's, and it's just all of these people with these enormous numbers of skills. And I see well, him on the phone. He's speaking in his native Indian, you know, as a Sikh immigrant. And then all of a sudden he's speaking fluent Spanish. And then he <laughs> speaks English better than I do. And you have all the highly educated. It's just amazing to see the number of people that we kind of forget in the other California that are just, gosh. And then when I drive into Palo Alto and I see these trucks, uh, you know, refrigerated trucks and stuff, they're coming over Pacheco Pass and everything and coming up 101 on the Salinas Valley. And 
They're just bringing in tons, millions of pounds of fruit and vegetables to the entire Silicon Valley, nine million Bay Area people. And then I go out in the evening some days and I see all them bringing all the other stuff out, you know, right. and I keep thinking, okay, we're using your cell phones and your Google searches, but you guys, and that's really nice and that helps right. us farm, but you wouldn't eat if these people didn't truck this stuff in. It struck me many years ago, Victor, and, and we got to move on to this next question, but the, how intelligent and how, as you say, you're consumed with, with your trade at the time. You knew what you were doing. And remember when, I think it was during the uh, 88 um, Democratic primary, may have been Michael Dukakis or somebody going, telling the farmers in Iowa who were having real trouble with corn prices at the time, well, why don't you grow Belgian endive? I remember that. <laughs> so, I remember that. That was Eric, almost as good as Mike Bloomberg. Remember, drop the seed. Yeah. Kind of go on autopilot and it sprouts. Right. And they, these guys aren't very smart. They just kind of drop a seed and bang. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'll grow the Belgian endive. Thank you for the suggestion. Hey, Mike, well, anyway. You know, you just kind of, uh, you know, just kind of an idea in your head and you say, I'm going to have kind of a worldwide information about stocks and you call it Bloomberg and you just sit back and you make your worth 60 billion. That was easy, wasn't it? Right. <laughs> All right. People who work with their hands. We're going to get to an important question yeah. about this right after these messages. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Uh, this um, show is being recorded late August and is going to be up on September 6th on the World Wide Webs on September 6th. The great Victor Davis Hanson, who I have the great pleasure to be talking with today, twice a week. He He's teaching up at Hillsdale, which is, uh, I think this is the 19th or 20th year that Victor is doing that. So, Victor, while... Um, while we were preparing for these podcasts, many people sending questions. And here's one from Christopher Ott, a little, little preamble. Uh, I've owned a small business specializing in specialty automotive repairs and parts manufacturing. My generation, Generation X, 
grew up with an emphasis from society on college and not trades. I did not attend, I, excuse me, I did attend college, but working with the hands and the mind was far more appealing. Instead, I opened a business and have run it continuously for 34 years. In that period, I've seen a massive reduction in all trade skills, and it's troubling. Mechanics, plumbers, electricians, AC techs, etc. In our area of the world, these trades are mostly being filled by first-generation immigrants. In addition, it seems that the average citizen has lost their ability to do basic hands-on repairs of any type. Very few of the people I know could replace a light switch or unclog a drain. This seems a massive strategic issue for the United States. What would his, that's you, Victor, what would Victor's thoughts be of this? And Victor, we have uh, we have about eight minutes left. So. I, yeah, I agree <laughs> entirely. Um, I mean, what saved me as a person, if I am saved, were the eight or nine, 10 years when I came back with a PhD at 25 on the farm and then growing up earlier. And by that, I mean, I had to go lay cement with my parents or my grandparents. So I know how to lay cement. I know every aspect of it. And I know how to hammer and, and to build a building. I had to do that. I put in a sewer system with four inch PVC, et cetera, et cetera. I fix all of my irrigation on my sprinkler system. Uh, I know how to prune trees. I know how I've put in about three roofs, composition roofs. I shouldn't be turned loose on wiring because uh, amateurs are dangerous because they try to do more than they know. But I've done that. I go into the house three or four times a year to fix the plumbing. I think about three or four months ago, the main water uh, one inch. It's only one inch. It's an ancient water supply of the house in the middle blew up at night. And my wife and I were out in mud uh, for two or three hours where we tried to dig down four feet, find the line, and then get a coupling on galvanized pipe. And we did that. My garage is full of every type of uh, extra part I can think of uh, in case something happens out here. I have a one-acre yard. It's just So I, I did all that. And uh, that was in addition to, I think I could still drive most tractors. I've had kind of rusty. I don't know the new computer drive, but I drove almost every tractor. Massey, Ford, Oliver, David Brown, you name it. I could drive it pretty well. I was pretty good at it. Not as good as my brother. Uh, I drove every spray rig. I know how to do that. I could fix things. Um, so I, and my father insisted on that and, he one last thing because I know we're out of time now. I think it's very valuable, and I try to teach my children that. And they're they are very mechanical. At times, I kind of overdid it because I didn't learn classical languages in high school. And then I was an undergraduate and kind of caught up, and so I was a philologist. By that I mean I went to a program where it was not archaeology or history, but pure Latin and Greek. And, you know, I didn't go to prep school, so I wanted to master those. And you had to learn. So that meant hours um, of study. And then I went to the American School of Classical Studies. But long and short of it, at certain times, I kind of crashed and burned. I got right. e. e. coli in Greece, very serious from eating strawberries that had been, you know, fertilized with night soil. And then I um, got a severe staghorn calculus when I got so I got very ill almost died had to be flown home and be operated but when I came my father said something to me I'll never forget 
He said, you don't get sick. Your body allows these things to do it to you because you're, you're not balanced, Victor. Right. Your brothers are balanced. All you're doing is reading, 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 and you just, you don't, you should see yourself. You sit there and read that damn Greek or Latin and you just do, you need to get out. So you've got a serious kidney problem and I'm going to cure you. So for that summer, he made me wear shorts, tan, no, no shirt. And I was, you know, I had all these surgical scars, really big operation. I was still weak from the equal. And I tagged along with him and I was 25 and we did farm work. He said, when it's all over. And I never forgot that. So when I, uh, I, I, I had a bad case of mono in my thirties, kind of the same thing, exhaustion. And then you try to get over it. And so when I got this COVID long COVID, I kept doing it. I kept going to, I went to Israel with a group. I went back East and then finally this little voice said, listen to your grandfather and father and go back to their farm and stay there. And it's not the physical work there that's going to kill you. It's this damn constant reading, stress. And so I've been healing. So what I'm getting at is that I think it's really important for all of us to have some kind of physicality in our lives, both because it, the body matches the mind, but it also gives us an empathy to people who, um, who work with their hands yeah. and who provide us with stuff. So I, I'll just finish with this final anecdote. So I have, I've mentioned this constant remodeling project. And right. It started in January, and it's so labor short. It's still going on. But I always think about these guys that are out here working. What if they got COVID? Well, two of them did. So I just thinking, I said to my wife the other day, Jesus had COVID. And he's a painter, and he's inhaling all that stuff. And if he doesn't work, he doesn't get paid. Right. And so I've been texting him, and I'm thinking, God, these guys – I mean, I'm lucky because I can do right. If I don't feel well right now, it doesn't matter. I can do this. But what if I had to make my living inhaling paint right now? You right. see what I mean? Yeah. So if you do stuff like that, you then you get empathy for the people who do it all the time. And right. I think that's really important because, as I said at the beginning of one of our earlier podcasts today, our, our first uh it's not the painter. It's not the plumber. It's not the electrician. It's not... Uh, the sewer installer who's failing America. They do a better job than they ever did. It's not the guy in the plant that's putting together your truck. It's the people in the deskbound, right. deskbound intellectual, techie, whatever they are, social media class. Those people have let us down. It's not the middle class, muscular class. They're better than ever. Yeah. And the military people that are out and God knows where or the pilots, they are not letting us down. Or the yeah. airline pilots are not letting us down. It's people like the Pete Buttigiegs of the world that are letting us down. Those types of people are the Gavin Newsom class is letting us down. They are failing at what they do, but not not the middle classes. Yeah. You know, John uh, Ratzenberger, who is Cliff Clavin, on Cheers, the mailman. I, I met him. He's a wonderful guy. Oh, I love John. He's He lives in in Milford. Oh, I haven't seen him in a couple of years, but he had a show on uh, Made in America that used to be on, I forget, the TLC or one of the cable channels. And John's, of course, great advocate uh, for uh, learning the trades. And not only because they're 
if you if you were a welder in America, you're a rich man. If you become a plumber, you're going to own the town eventually. <laughs> but he had some studies uh, just very dispiriting on you know the average age of of a trade worker is is really high. So this is the point of the question, you know, about this being a strategic problem for America. And uh, one of the studies, like you know, most Americans don't know how to change a tire on a car. He's right. How about to unclog a drain? So it's it is uh, troubling and it's a drum beat worth the uh, you know continuing to beat on this and other podcasts. And I do have to say this, Victor, what the first, the very first podcast you and I ever did a long time ago when it was a national review, um, you, uh, you were great, but at the end, you had told me you had uh, you had passed out earlier that day. You were repairing plumbing under the house. You had yeah, a fever. And yet you were in the saddle to do so. You're, you know, you have the the ability, and you continue to do things, and and uh, and yet perform uh, intellectually. It's kind of kind of. Uh, I had no hot wondrous. water that day yeah. because of galvanized. When your pump goes off and it goes back on and goes back off, it tends to purge itself, and for the main sink in the house, it just sent all of this ancient rust. <laughs> So I was under there trying to take all the hot water pipe. And when you go deal with three quarter inch corroded galvanized pipe, and you take off one coupling, it breaks. Yeah. And you, it just, I don't even want to get into and so it. I'm sorry. I'm having flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any, anyway, to, to the folks who have asked us uh, these questions and others who submitted questions, we really appreciate it. We have a few more of these uh, listener question podcasts to record, and we will be doing that. Victor, thanks. Uh, for your wisdom, I want to remind people to uh, subscribe to uh, Victor's website, victorhanson.com. Uh, for me, Jack Fowler, uh, subscribe to the free weekly email newsletter I write, Civil Thoughts. You can do that at civilthoughts.com. And uh, thanks to those who on Apple Podcasts leave us five-star ratings. And that would be about 99% of the people who do leave ratings. So uh, appreciate your confidence and and your own appreciation of Victor's uh, wisdom that we share now, I think five times a week, twice with me, twice with the great Sammy Wink and Victor himself interviewing people now. So it's all terrific. Thanks very much. Thank you, Victor. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Yes. Thank you, everybody.